the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon and greetings. Thank you for coming along on this February 29th, the Leap Day edition of The Ride Home. And uh, we're in the mood for leaping here because mm-hmm. bad back and all, mm-hmm. Kath is sitting in the studio. Thank you, you guys. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I'm making my triumphant leap day return. <laughs> well, don't be leaping too much, okay? <laughs> be gentle. There you go. Thank yeah. you, sir. You guys, thanks for covering oh, and peace cake. filling all that in while I was uh, ailing with my back, mm-hmm. which I still am, mm-hmm. I believe, at heart, but I'm on a, a steroid high. Mm. Uh, you know, I have the five-day pack, yeah. you know, and I'm on day two, and so I do feel like I could conquer the world. Very nice. So it, it could be, I, I said to Lex, it could be a terrible letdown, like come Sunday. Oh, <laughs> when you come off the steroid yeah. five day, uh-huh. your head's gotten bigger. Has it? Okay, just Has it? You know. I feel very strong. <laughs> exactly. All right. You can still hit a fly ball into a home run. <laughs> I feel like it's spring training yeah. to am right now. Hey, Paul Skeens is making his uh, debut today. Excellent. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm super excited. Good you news know, on the horizon. it's not televised anywhere. Of course not. It's okay. Probably better for him. Yeah, probably is. A little less pressure for the kid. But it's not good for me. No. It's all right. Anyway, coming up on today's program, Mm -hmm. John, in the five o'clock hour of today's show, we're going to be talking about Lent with Dr. Amy Peeler. Um, Lent's been interesting for me. I'm sure it's been interesting for you as yeah, well. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very so intentional. We, we can kind of uh, chat about that. Also, um, Bruce Yankoviak from St. Vincent College will be with us to talk about prosecutors not disclosing favorable info to defendants. This is a perpetual issue. Some are calling it an epidemic in criminal law. We love Bruce. Yeah. I mean, I know nothing. We're getting schooled. I know nothing about about law. But considering and, the headlines and all that's yeah, going on right feel, now with I the Supreme like, Court and whatnot. Yeah, it's just like he's the perfect person to be here. Sure anyway, is. very much looking forward to that. Also, um, seven best Pittsburgh salads mm. from next Pittsburgh. Wait, with fries. With there, all, there's the caveat. Of course. All right. All right. So listen, so while you're away, <laughs> maybe much to your chagrin, we have not been doing the top four. What? I'm just saying. Oh, my gosh. I'm so happy yeah, to be We've back. been wandering down. Oh. We've been newsless what? here at the ride home. I mm-hmm. am bringing it. Right. So thank you. Thank you for bringing the news okay. story. Been wondering what's going on in the world. Yeah. Always kind of curious. Without further ado, here's the top four at four. Hey, John, it's Thursday. Oh. February 29th. I love it. 2024. Happy birthday to those five million leapers out there. Good for you guys. And I'm going to read the news now. All right. Okay. Go at it. Number one. In the Texas panhandle, lamp posts are now melted. Power line posts split in half. Homes and properties have been reduced to charred remains. The Smokehouse Creek fire that broke out Monday has since extended to 1.1 million acres, quickly becoming the largest and most destructive in state history and the second largest wildfire in U.S. history. There are at least five active wildfires throughout the state right now, with the Smokehouse Creek fire being the largest by far and part of a multi-day wildfire outbreak across Texas and Oklahoma. 
Man, Texas. is that scary? Wow. It was 94 there the I, other day. Just, Our friends in Dallas. I know. I can't believe that. Shoot me. That's from CBS News. Number two. President Biden and former President Donald Trump will each visit the U.S.-Mexico border today as the two likely 24 opponents seek to blame the other's party for record illegal crossings that are a top concern for voters. Biden will be making his second trip to the border as president. He's expected to meet with Border Patrol agents and law enforcement while blaming Republicans for blocking the bipartisan border agreement in the Senate that would have allowed the government to expel migrants if crossing surpassed a daily threshold of 4K. After all that negotiation, the Republicans said the terms didn't go far enough, and then that was that. Let's all go home. I feel like everybody, I could be wrong, but I feel like everybody doesn't want to solve the problem. They just not. want to blame it on the other they party. They just want to play politics. So this is the worst pit of government you'll exactly. ever find. Which is where he have been for years in D.C. Number three, the RMS Titanic may have sunk in the North Atlantic back in 1912, but the exhibition currently on display about this voyage has proved to be unsinkable at the Carnegie Science Center. I'm going. Be- are you? Sunday. Because the Titanic artifact exhibition has broken attendance records as the most visited of all the center's traveling exhibits in uh, in the PPG Science Pavilion. Excellent. More than 82,000 Pittsburghers have walked through the exhibit nice. since October 21st. After Church Sunday, we're headed. That's so awesome. No. Good for you. No. It closes Monday, April 15th, um, and there are more than 150 authentic artifacts in meticulously created rooms. And since I read about it this morning, I want to go to... Well, when you go in, your ticket mm-hmm. has the name of the Titanic passenger that you are representing. No way. Mm-hmm. That's a terrific yeah. idea. What You can also see the movie. Yeah. I don't think I want to live through yeah, that movie again. Fine. I really don't. Anyway, read more, more about that at Pittsburgh Magazine. And number four, yeah. after 30 seasons as the voice of the Steelers, Bill Hillgrove is retiring from radio play-by-play duties. And that is your top four. Okay. Four. So he's leaving the Steelers 30-plus years, but he continues, his voice will be continue to be heard on sports around the area. Yes. So uh, he'll still be doing pit basketball and mm-hmm. pit football. Excellent. Uh, he said this, he, was t- he announced it on DVE this morning, and he said, I remember what former Steelers coach Chuck Knoll said, if you're thinking about it, maybe it's time Mm, and it's time. Yeah. So he wants to take boat rides in September and October on Conneaut Lake and look at the foliage because he's never had a chance to do it because he's been broadcasting every fall since 1994 when he took over for Jack Fleming. Wow. How old is he? He is 83. Oh, he should run for president. He, <laughs> what the heck? He absolutely. Plenty of space there. Abs- now, listen, when he takes over... <clears throat> pit uh, football in the fall. That'll be his 52nd year. That's crazy. And when he takes over pit basketball next year, it'll be 56. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, that... What a career. So he called four Super Bowls. Right. I mean, how many people had a chance to do that? There are lovely statements by Art Rooney and Mike Tomlin today. Um, But he's the third longest continuously tenured play by play announcer with one team in the NFL. The third. Yeah. You know know where Billy grew up? Where? Uh, Garfield. Hey, excellent. Yep. A Pittsburgher true and true. Yep. So he was with Myron Cope first, yep. Merrill Hodge, mm. uh, our good friend Tunch, yep. and most we- recently uh, Wolf and Missy Matthews and Max Starks. Wow. What a career. Yep. With the Steelers and continuing on with Pitt. Very, very nice. Okay, that is the top four at four. We've missed you. We'll take a quick break, resettle. It's the ride home. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on 101.5 Word FM, WORD.
I remember when my kids were in elementary school. Yeah. You know, there are certain things about parenting that, you know, you individually do pretty well and the other things you're a complete disaster at. Well, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't have cared less about packing lunches. Oh. Okay, I just, I really disliked it. So I don't know what hungry? it was. About, I don't know what it was, but I just hated doing it. So, uh, I mean, I always did do it, yeah. but I, I always hated it. And then I would log on to social media, yeah. and I had two friends who I have completely lost touch with. But they would actually post a photograph of the lunch that they prepared for mm. their child. It was beautiful organized it was like artfully displayed nutritionally it was balanced exactly mm. and it wasn't and you know she made a hundred lunches at one time and froze them so it was also economical and oh. anyway i felt like the worst parent mm-hmm. i just i i had to unfollow them what'd your kids get like a frozen pancake they got a peanut butter and jelly that's fine and a jello pudding and some fruit. That's more than enough. And some pretzels. Come on. That was it. But Don't they, they got that. that for like 12 years. That's okay. Okay. Listen, one time, I mean, we had so much egg salad sandwich. <laughs> if I ever see, I gag when I smell egg salad <laughs> now. I'm so tired of it. And that was 50 years ago. Seriously. Oh, All right. Kelsey Kramer McGinnis is with us. He's a musicologist and educator based in Iowa, a regular contributor to CT. All this angst is caused by Kelsey. Uh, Christian moms feel more pressure to get it right. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, does it surprise you, my sad story about lunches? No, I think that story is so, so, so common. Um, was Instagram around when yes. you were packing? Yes. Yes, oh, that's, what, seeing... that's, that's where I was yeah. seeing the horribleness of what these other two friends yeah, of mine were doing. Of course, yeah. Feed your kids a rainbow-colored lunch that's mm. organized in a nice little bento box. Mm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think that's so, so common. So social media is, so I think maybe parenthood just comes with the unavoidable uh, thought, I'm screwing it up, that mm-hmm. in that internal voice. But social media, man, does that amp it up? Yeah, gosh. I was talking to an author recently who referred it to referred to it as seeing everyone's highlight real at once, um, which is exactly what it is. You're just sort of scrolling past the best of everyone's everything um, and filtering your own experience of parenthood through that. And that can be really, really hard um, when the stakes of parenthood have always felt high. I mean, they they feel high no matter what. um, And they certainly felt high before social media. But now we have this this tool that's supposed to be there for connection, but I think for most parents, it ends up being there more for comparison than connection. As much as we try to protect ourselves from that, it's just really hard. Right. So, Kels, is this something new, or has it always been, you know, a mom would feel discouraged, or as, you know, as Kath's saying, is the age we live in just made things worse? Well, I mean, it's hard to know. I my kids are two, four, and six, so I couldn't I couldn't guess that. You've got a long way to go. Or, <laughs> I do. I'm a very long way to go. So I have no advice, only commiseration. Um, but you know, when I talk to parents who are more experienced than myself, um, they would say the pressure has always been there. It's just a different kind of pressure now. Um, and I, you know, I don't really know whether it's better or worse, but we, we do know that anxiety seems to be rising among parents and children. Um, it seems to be higher than it has been. Um, and 
I, it's hard to know how much social media is a part of that, but I think a lot of moms can attest to feeling like they want to use social media for connection and friendship and community, but just feeling like they have this real love-hate relationship with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I take my dog for a walk in the morning, and I always see a, like a mom or two rolling the stroller, and I just want to offer some kind of, you know, thumbs-up encouragement, because it feels as though a lot of people aren't even having kids anymore, just because even from the outset, it feels too difficult. Yeah, yeah. It. I mean, I think it has always been difficult. I think moms have always felt, and I say moms, parents, parents, moms and dads, but I think moms especially, um, especially when we're talking about the pressure that's being exerted by social media, just feel like it's, it's a tall order and doing it right as a Christian mom, the stakes feel so high and the expectations feel so high and um, it's hard to feel like you're not failing. So if you reckon, I mean, we all know what social media does to us, so it's not a real surprise, but we still do it, right? We still look at what other people are doing. And do so you? we're Oh, yeah. That's horrible. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> especially moms. You just have to know that's kind of, I, in my experience, that's just how moms are. Um, so if you are, um, if you're trying to rise above it and also be practical at the same time, like for example, going back to my, my lunch thing, um, we were just really tight on money at the time that my kids were little. So it's not mm-hmm. like I was going to be doing something drastically different with their lunches. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just, I just had mm-hmm. limited options. Um, mm-hmm. So in some ways it's helpful because you kind of, it restricts you from going crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for women who aren't concerned about money, you can really go hog wild trying to get rid of that fear that you have mm-hmm. inside of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, one I, I spoke to for this story, Susie Goff, who's the author of um, the new book, The Worry-Free Parent. Uh, and one piece of advice that she had that I thought was just so um, so thoughtful was just to pick a couple of just a couple voices that you resonate with, that you feel like speak to you as a parent in your phase of parenthood and your the particularities of your life. So if, you know, there are influencers out there who speak specifically to more budget conscious things or maybe you don't want to follow a wide range of influencers who who share pictures of food at all maybe you want to find like one or two people on social media who just kind of share videos of parenting tips and you like the way they talk about parenthood and they resonate with your worldview Um, but she really spoke about the value of narrowing down the number of voices that you allow into Mm, your head and into your life as a parent and I I can speak to that, you know, as a parent, I found that to be very helpful. I, there are a couple of people whose books and um, podcasts I listen to, and I kind of cut it off after that, not because there isn't more valuable stuff out there, but because I can't process it. And that's just adding more pressures, more ideas, more hoops to jump through. Um, and that's been really helpful to me. So I would just say that might be a really practical, helpful place to start. That's really good. Okay, so uh, I'm of the era, Kels, where uh, James Dobson's books were seminal in mm-hmm. a lot of Christian families. And then Paul mm-hmm. David Tripp came along, and he was also mm-hmm. in the library as well. Can you talk about those mm-hmm. books from your perspective? Are they anywhere near you, or have you moved on to something else? 
personally, for me, I, I don't keep um, Dobson's books on my shelves, um, and I don't read a lot of parenting books, to be honest. I have a couple favorites, and I'm I'm hesitant even to say which ones those okay, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to I don't want to feel like I am giving advice at all. Um, but I do think that the tone of parenting literature has changed quite a bit. Mm. Um, there's been there's just been a lot of research since you know Dobson's book Dare to Discipline that really kind of shot him to fame was in 1970. And there's just been a lot of research about child development, behavioral psychology, education um, that has given us new ways to think about um, how to raise children from, you know, infancy through toddlerhood into childhood. Uh, and, and the tone of those is different, especially when it comes to things like discipline and behavior. Um, but also just in terms of giving parents more tools to deal with their own baggage and their own sort of hang-ups, that makes parenting a lot um, feel, you know, more possible. I think a lot of us struggle being triggered by our kids when we're when we're parents. We don't expect that, oh, they can make you so angry or they can make you so uncomfortable. Um, and a lot of the newer books, like Sissy Goff's in particular, um, are really trying to help parents have tools to deal with that. So that's a real switch from, um, I would say, the 70s, maybe the 70s, 70s yeah, no. I would think. Um, and I only know that, you know, I was a kid in the 70s, but I remember mm-hmm. um, friends of my family who were raising kids at that time, and Dobson's books were like the only books. Well, and yeah. maybe Dr. Spock's books, but those were like the only mm-hmm. books. And as I remember, the idea was that, the parents were the authority. And so you oh, have to, um, in all of your interactions with your children, just reinforce that idea of parental authority. And so you look at how those books you just mentioned are talking to parents. That is so different. Now Total it's, shift. Now it's yeah. like, okay, parents, you know, deal with your own issues um, and kind of bring your kids along for the ride type of thing. Am I, am, am, do you think I'm stating that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of the shift is is looking back at those books, and you know, there's not everything in Dobson's books or um, you know Ted Tripp's book, um, Shepherding a Child's Heart, was of kind of a similar era. Not everything in those books is wrong or bad, even, but they they do make some promises about parents' kind of ability to control their children that are a little bit unrealistic or they're unrealistic without really coming down hard on your children in ways that we kind of know now might have some bad developmental outcomes just based on research that's been done in the past 50 years. Um, And so I think, you know, I, I, I think Christian parents know that they are the authority in their child's life. They are the person raising their kids. But I think a shift in posture from constantly having to remind them of that authority um, away from that and into a little bit more, um, I don't know, relational, connected, and curious position towards your children. I think there's been a real shift in trying to understand the behavior rather than just trying to stop it mm-hmm. using their authority. Mm-hmm. And um, from my perspective, I think that's a really good shift. But I do understand why some Christian parents are uncomfortable with it because it feels like telling parents, oh, no, you don't need to be the authority, when rather it's just this shift to say, try to understand what's under the behavior, because it's probably communicating a need or something that they haven't developed the skills to do yet. Um, And I think it just gives parents permission to be more curious. 
Mm-hmm. Kelsa, I'm a child of the 60s. I'm one of seven mm-hmm. kids. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I see this and I, you know, uh, I hear this conversation. When we get together, when us seven kids get together and we talk about our mom and our dad and our upbringing, I mean, they did the best they could do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew we were loved. Uh, they mm-hmm. struggled, I'm, I'm sure, you know, day to day. Finances, of course, like, you know, they were tight, but we knew that they weren't going anywhere, that they were going to stay mm-hmm. married. Uh, and, and most importantly, they were here with us, you know, just in the conversation of going through the challenges. So I think that to me, that's like the overriding thing. And of course, mm-hmm. everything's changed now with social media. I would say what you will. It has just been so cataclysmic, I'm sure, for everyone personally and in the family as well. But the overriding thing is you love your kids, you do your best, you show up, and, you know, hopefully they'll turn out okay as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, gosh, that's that's always true. Like, we want to do the best we can with the information we have. And as that information changes, um, or as you know, new research comes out, or just as people develop new ways of talking about things, I think it can feel threatening to older generations or like there's there are these accusations coming down um, from younger parents saying you did all of this wrong now we're doing this differently and I I just hope that conversations like this can really focus on giving the benefit of the doubt to parents who love their children mm-hmm. and have been prayerfully raising children yes. and you know I, I think parents are looking for help and looking for guidance and you know, there's always been a market for Christian parenting literature, and people have been there to to meet that demand. And those people are people, and they get some things wrong, and they get something right. And, um, you know, I, I think parents can feel like they, you know, can find voices out there, but should be discerning and should feel free to kind of pass over the ones that they feel like, I don't know if that's right, or you know, because I think, you know, you know your children better than anybody else, and not every resource is going to speak to you. Amen. Kelsey Kramer McGinnis is with us. She's a regular contributor to Christianity Today. She writes and reports on worship and church culture. Um, Kelsey, you want to tell our listeners before you leave us uh, where your writing can be found and uh, what you're working on now? Sure. So um, most of my writing can be found at Christianity Today. Um, this new article on um, momfluencers and social media is up there right now. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at kkramer, Kelsey, Kelsey K. McGinnis is my name there. Um, and I, I publish a little bit on um, the history of Christian parenting literature there as well as my, my writing on music. Excellent. Well, Kelsey, thanks a lot. I mean, well done. It seems like common sense, and you're like everybody else, you know, mom and dad just trying to figure it out and do the best for your kids. So thanks for that. We all are. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Truly it is. Kelsey uh, Kramer McGinnis. Kelsey Kramer McGinnis, as she said, her article is up at Christianity Today. Christian moms feel more pressure to get it right. So I've been ailing at home with a bad back. Mm, right? This this started uh, well. It started a month ago, and I thought I kind of licked it. And then, as it anyway, uh, my husband and I were away over the weekend. It got really bad, and so this is my first day at work this week. But the question is, when you're home from work, what are you going to watch on TV? Right. Because and I'm not in a great frame of mind. You can you know, you sure. from from You're the back. Thing. So it's not like this is like, whoa, yay, day off, no. you know. Um, 
So I th- and I have to admit, I know you all. You feel, I did feel guilty that you guys were working extra because that's feel I know, but that's what happens when one of Everyone us is away. Gets you sick. feel I know, I know, but I was so I thought to myself, what could I watch that would make John happy? Oh, very nice. That's an excellent perspective. Thank you. So I watched Julia. Oh, did you? HBO Max. Yes. What? Yes. A show. Yes, I tell you. Oh I tell you. Oh, my gosh. How many episodes? What a show. I've only seen three. Mm-hmm. Oh. And wow. I fell asleep in the third one, which I was very happy about because I've been having a really hard time sleeping because yes. of my back. Anyway. So glorious. Listen, if you have a chance to watch mm-hmm. this, if you have HBO, you you it's just such an amazing performance it's delightful isn't it incredible the music is wonderful Everything. the costuming and the sets the are relationship terrific how many different relationships that are so beautiful oh my gosh bb newworth oh, is she's incredible, incredible. Just wait. sarah lancashire of course oh, is the one who julia. plays julia and david hyde pierce right her husband it's really wonderful yes. so in a streaming landscape of unfettered violence yeah Blood, guts, gore, anger. This is not that. Right. It's the opposite of that. Right. So you loved, for example, Breaking Bad. I loved The Bear. Mm-hmm. But they are both so intense. Yeah. Like you, it's so. This is so light and pleasant. Mm-hmm. But still, it's very interesting to very me. Very much so. Deeply engaging. Especially seeing the relationship between Julia Child her producer at the TV station, and all the men who work there. Yeah, very much so. From a 1960s perspective. I, that's so good for me to see mm-hmm. because I take for granted how, you know, as a woman, I walk into a place and I'm taken seriously. Yeah. They had to prove oh. that every minute of every day. She stood no chance. That producer, just pummeled by these guys. And they, you can see this. Pretty much clueless about the subject. Right. No, I, mean, I had no idea. on this. And thought it was going to be so right. stupid. So the genius of Julia Childs is coming off a little financial success because she just published a cookbook that became a bestseller. She had some money in the bank. Right. So she went into WGBY in Boston. GBH. WGBH in Boston and said, I want to do this show. And they were like, eh. She said, I'll put up the money, my money to produce this. And it's going to be just a pilot. One episode. She did. she did it. She did it. I never knew that it was her idea to do that show. I did not show. either, no. I never knew that she put up the money for and it. And then reading about the show after the fact, because of course we loved it, a lot of that is historically accurate. The relationships, the settings, all those different things. Anyway, even if you don't have Max, HBO Max, you can get a free trial or just watch it. It's really worth tune it. Tune in for a month of it and then and then just crush on it for like, it's only two two seasons. And you think the whole Food Network era that we live in is attributed to that moment when she said, I want to do this on TV. Nobody had ever done that. People thought that was ridiculous. And now look at what it spawned. Billion, billion, billion. Exactly. So if you've ever watched anything on the Food Network, you've ever watched any of the crazy shows about Hell's Kitchen or whatever, listen, you have Julia tonight. Many, many decades ago when my parents got married, my mother was a devout Roman Catholic. My father's family, they were Protestants. My father's family was so outraged that he would marry Roman Catholic, they essentially just uh, told him to go away. There was very little engagement. Now, Kath, you, on the other hand, your mother, very devout, mm-hmm. your father, mm-hmm. no belief at all. Mm-hmm. But still, they got married. Yep. 
my parents' marriage, I say, successful marriage. Your parents' marriage, successful marriage. It was also very difficult uh on our family. Because of the lack of faith? Oh, yeah. Interesting. Oh, it was very, very, very. It was was a big point of dissension in our house when I was growing up. So does it make a difference to be yoked? Yes. It does. Yes, it does. But what is that actually... I mean, you can't be yoked in everything. It's not like you're marrying your mirror opposite. Right. Or, I mean, your that mirror opposite is inappropriate. Yeah. But you're not marrying someone who's just like you. But does it matter? It, ma- it, it you're has saying to it matter. Ha- that if, if you're a believer, and, and whether you're a Roman Catholic marrying a Protestant or a... Uh, a Christian marrying a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, that Mary. That that's different. All right. Lisa Anderson's back with us. She is uh, the host and director of Boundless. She's a young adults at Focus on the Family. She hosts the Boundless Show. It's a weekly podcast and a radio show. Here today to talk to us about being equally yoked. Lisa, welcome back. How you doing? Hey, good to be here. I'm not sure. I don't know if you guys need me. You're getting pretty intense already here. So <laughs> oh no, we need you. Oh, believe me, Lisa. Tread into this. Oh. If anything, you're a good referee. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Oh, that, that okay. Do. So it's a hard thing because we know the scripture says you shouldn't be unequally yoked. So yep. of course, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. But to you know, when I was growing up, I I thought of that a lot with my parents because they were in such different places spiritually. Um, and that that was such a point of contention. Uh, but over time, that faded. And by the time my parents passed away, it wasn't even a thing. So uh, marriages can go through many, many cycles. But at the beginning, when people are trying to figure out whether they're even going to get into a marriage, what are the things that you think they need to talk about? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's interesting because even if we talk about someone like beliefs and where they are spiritually and all that, there are a number of areas on which a couple can differ. But the one that is scripturally kind of a non-negotiable is kind of what you said, Kathy, and that is marrying someone who does not also um, trust Christ as their savior for the person who is a believer. And I say, especially when I talk to young adults, because they're kind of like, well, you know, does it really matter? I mean, and they think of it in practical terms, like, well, I guess it would affect, you know, how we raise our kids, or I, you know, I guess it would affect. And I'm like, well, here's what it's going to affect. You are literally like attaching your life to someone that you just by virtue of your beliefs have to acknowledge that they are not going to share eternity with you. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's like, I, I say that even, you know, boundless being part of focus on the family. I say this and it offends people. I'm like, it doesn't matter. You know, focus on the family has for years helped people navigate marriage and parenting. So how do you, how do you get a healthy marriage and how do you parent your kids well and love them and all that? And I'm like, literally none of that matters if someone in this equation is going to hell. So Right. So sure. this is why we have to get first things first, because wouldn't you want that person that you have now yoked yourself to and you have made them your person? Wouldn't you want to walk into, you know, life and then ultimately beyond this life with that person? And so I think that's kind of the common denominator that we have yeah. to talk about. But then everything else, there's a lot of nuance in there, too, and things to talk about as far as like, 
okay, what? so say this person says they believe in God or that they were born in Texas, so that makes them a Christian. Okay, what are, <laughs> how are we parsing this out so it can get tricky? Yeah. Well, well, for us, Lisa, there's my mom, a devout Roman Catholic. My father was like, that's fine. They had seven kids, but he never showed up at church. Yeah. Yeah, so interesting. And it's really, I mean, again, and, and you know, Catholics, I mean, they don't play around. They're kind of like, you have to be baptized in the Catholic Church, or there's like a lot of problems around that. Yep. And so I, it's funny to me how little people talk about this before they get married, because, in fact, I had a, to that point, uh, John, I had a coworker one time back in the day say she was Lutheran and her husband was Catholic. And she's like, well, you know, so give us your advice. Like, you know, how do you think we're going to make this work? Because we're arguing over like where mm. our kids are going to go to school or how our kids are going to get baptized. And I said, I started out by saying, well, first of all, I think both of you have to acknowledge that you're not a good Lutheran and he's not a very good Catholic because <laughs> no. you're already conceding some pretty big things here. And she was like, yeah, I think we have to admit that because this is getting a little bit crazy. Yes. So, you know, so it is true. There are things that you have to put on the page as far as non-negotiables versus the things where maybe you're going to have to give some ground. Yeah, that's good. But people will say, I love her. I love him. I, I'm not complete without them. I can, how can I just walk away from this? But there are non-negotiables. There are absolutely non-negotiables. And so I would say for a person who says that they're a disciple of Jesus Christ, I mean, you got to go to Scripture and find out what are those. And, you know, I just quickly, I will say, um, is this a person who, you know, can articulate their faith, what they believe, and there is evidence of this faith? So this means they are a disciple of Christ. They are not just you know, again, a Texan. Um, It's someone who recognizes their own sin and they repent of it. They forgive others. They love fellow Christians. You know, it says in in the Bible, they'll know we are Christians by our love for one another. They evidence the fruit of the Spirit, and they are very, very committed to the authority of Scripture in their life. And I think that in our culture today, that's a big dividing line. And so just starting out with those things, you know, is going to be a lot of discussion to have right there, because otherwise, you know, again, Kathy mentioning being unequally yoked, when you are yoked to a person, you will be pulling in opposite directions if you're not looking in the same direction and headed towards the same goal. Yeah, it's hard. And look, we're unequally yoked in many areas in marriage. So it's not like this is the only one. But I do think this is the most important one. Um, And I guess, you know, it's a matter of trying to decide what you're willing to work through. Do you think that's an appropriate question to ask? I think that when you get down to the gray areas, that is absolutely where you're going to be playing. Because like I said, I mean, you need to get the non-negotiables on the table because that will, that, I mean, there we're talking about eternal consequences. But then let's move into this area of like, okay, but what about if, if I've been a Christian my whole life and the person I'm dating has only been a Christian for five years. Okay. Well, there might be some differences there. There's going to be a history of church experience that you have that maybe he doesn't. There's going to be maybe some maturity issues of what, you know, what do you know versus what he knows or experiential things. Or sometimes there's some doctrinal differences, you know, people just coming from different backgrounds, but things that are non-essential. So, you know, what do you think about baptism? Is that immersion baptism or is that infant baptism? Is that, you know, how, because deciding on that, that's going to determine what kind of church you go to. I could tell you that. Yep. So all of a sudden you're going to be arguing about that. Also, what's going to determine your place of worship or, again, kids' schools, programs for the kids is going to be like your worship style. 
if you're full on charismatic and you want to run down the aisles and raise your hands and your husband is like hard pass, that is so embarrassing. That is not me. <laughs> someone's going to be fighting about that or someone's going to be changing churches, but you're going to have to decide which one of those it's going to be. And so those kind of things are, you know, sometimes you might need to talk to a pastor about it. Sometimes you might need to talk to a counselor about it, quite frankly, but all of those are negotiables that you're going to have to work through, but they do affect the way you walk out your marriage. And they could probably, you know, you could head a, a fair amount of arguments off at the past by at least having the conversation and being humble in the process. That's, That's good. good. We're talking with Lisa Anderson. She's a director of Boundless and Young Adults at Focus on the Family, hosts the Boundless Show, weekly podcast and radio show. So, Lisa, what I'm hearing is due diligence, better to have these uh, difficult and probably painful conversations well in advance as opposed to on the wedding day or after the wedding. Yeah, for sure. Because again, I mean, first of all, I think it's just a healthy exercise to figure out what you believe in mm-hmm. these various areas. I mean, that's just going to be, you know, that's almost like a runaway bride situation where, you know, decide how you like to eat your eggs uh, before you get married. So, you know what you believe and, you know, making the movie illusion there. But, you know, you got to decide that. Um, and I would say it's just it's a good exercise for you to do. And then also that's why I'm such a big fan of like pre-engagement counseling, because it gives you the space when you're not picking out wedding dresses and venues to really think through these things and say, OK, where are we going with this? And not have the pressure of we're heading down the aisle. So we got to decide. Yeah, that's so a good point. Just a great place to talk about it. Yeah. Um, Lisa, we had a guest on our show years ago, and he was probably, I would say, in his 70s when he was here. And uh, we were talking about something, you know, uh, professional on the air, what, what his job was, but off the air because we were friends um, or at least, you know, acquaintances. You know, I said, you know, how's your family going? And he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, well, my, my wife has gotten um, – she's doing well. She's gotten involved in like a, like more of a mystical approach to – like an experiential approach to prayer. And he said – And that's been hard for me because I don't really identify with that. And it makes me a little uncomfortable. He said, but um, I want her to go the road that she thinks that she needs to go um, because we love the same God. And he said, but I also, I'm just going to give her space to do that. Hmm. And I thought that was really a wise approach. And then mm-hmm. actually a year later, I saw him again and I said, how's that going? And he's like, oh, boy, it's, was, it's been so interesting. And he ended up kind of going down a similar path. Um, but it was just they had known each other so well over so many years that they trusted each other enough that he didn't think that she was a whack job. And she didn't <laughs> think that he was a stick in the mud. They both yeah. were okay enough to think that they were different. But there was a yeah. center point that they were, were both believers. Yes, they were both believers, yeah. but they were just going to pursue it a little differently. And it didn't, it wasn't an argument and it didn't wreck the marriage. It was just space. And I thought that that was a really mature approach. Yeah, that is so good. And it's like my um, my friend Gary Thomas, author of Sacred Marriage, often says, you know, you want to know that when you are standing before the Lord, you know, having been married throughout your lifetime, that you're bringing this, you're you're bringing a person along with you that you are hopefully pushing towards the cross of Christ, and you're hopefully pushing them towards maturity, and you're seeking their betterment, and you're concerned for their soul, and so that is, it's a very caring 
posture, I think, to say, yeah, I mean, as long again, you know, she's praying differently. Okay, as long as this doesn't involve like crystals and witchcraft, mm-hmm. probably right, right. good <laughs> style wise for her to be free to express herself in that way, I think is just is amazing. And, you know, I think we, we see a lot of people in worship styles along that way too. My dear friend Monica, uh, very much a more charismatic background than her husband. He was like Presbyterian. And she visited my church with him, which is Presbyterian, and she told me about it afterwards. And she's like, Lisa, the first downbeat of that organ, I just burst into tears. <laughs> I was like, I hear you, girl. It's very traditional, very high church. And so, but you know what? She, they were able to respect each other and their differences, and they ended up attending my church for a season. And so she was able to say, here's where we agree. It's on Jesus. Excellent. What mm-hmm. does it mean to be spiritually compatible? Lisa Anderson from Boundless. Lisa, take a second and talk to us about Boundless and your podcast. Yeah. Well, check us out at boundless.org. It is a space um, primarily for younger adults who are trying to navigate faith and life and relationships. We do it with community. We have articles. We have a blog. We have the show, which is anywhere that podcasts are found. And so it's just really a fun way to own kind of our maturity and walk forward in it and kind of link arms in the process. Hey, earlier this month on our show, we were talking about uh, ultrasounds and our pre-born campaign, which is about to wrap up. The good news is we're super close to the goal. We're like 15 babies away mm. for pre-born okay. to say yes to Western Pennsylvania. Okay, that's terrific. Now, look, that's a gift of just $140. For five babies. For five people. Yes. Right? That's all it is. Um, you can help today by calling 833-850-BABY. Mm-hmm. 833-850-BABY. You can also give online at wordfm.com. It's super easy to do that. Listen, um, I worked with women in crisis for a long time, and um, what they need is compassion. This is not the time for judgment. This is not the time to enforce the rules. This is the time to reach out and show that if we say we're pro-life, then we need to act like we're pro-life, right? right? And uh, the way that we do this in this instance is just showing a young woman what's going on inside her body. It's not a trick. We're not trying to be manipulative. We're just trying to say, hey, here's an ultrasound and this is what's going on. All the politics that are going on right now with Alabama and IVF, it doesn't mean anything, right? It means... A baby mm-hmm. and a, a mom. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. And hopefully the family with the dad. Yeah. All three together to save a baby's life. Mm-hmm. That's what our campaign's about for preborn. So join us, wordfm.com. You'll see the preborn banner there or by calling right now, 833 850 baby. That's 833 850 Real simple. Save a baby. We're 15 babies away from our goal. We would uh, hope you'd think about it, pray about it, and engage and uh, jump online, wordfm.com or 833-85-BABY. We're coming up uh, on the 5 o'clock hour after the break for news and weather. We're going to be talking about Lent. We'll also be talking about some things that are going on in the judicial system. And does this make sense? Stay close.
Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon and greetings to you. Thanks for coming along today on this February the 29th. Once every four years we say this. So we've been doing the show, I would say, 16 years. I would say four 15. times. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad yeah. you moved into the 15-year range. Because for a long time you were stuck at 12. Okay. Anyway, thanks for coming along today. Kath is back. Yay. Holy smokes. Hi, Yay, you guys. Indeed. Thanks for holding down the fort in my absence. Mm-hmm. My back was bad. It's still not great. It's still not great, but I'm on a steroid high. Five-day mm-hmm. pack of steroids. Boom. Uh, I said uh, uh, in the uh, news break that to John that this could be the best I'll ever be. <laughs> it's your best life now <laughs> Right, on everything else uh, in regards to me will probably decline over the next right. five days. So it's two sides of the coin. I mean, steroids, the the first vitality, it's such a rush, isn't it? It's weird. It changes everything. I really didn't believe that that was real oh, because you real. had told me that and I thought, well, Mike's probably exaggerating, mm-hmm. but he was not exaggerating. Right, be careful because Barry Bonds, he was prone to roid rage. <laughs> so be careful on the roads. I'm going to call you guys because I'm going to get into a fight with She's somebody on the way to Bloomfield. Cast all hot and bothered. Be careful, it's a road rage because of the roids. Oh, anyway, it's leap year the, on the 29th. Yeah, very nice, huh? So 5 million people across the world celebrate their birthday today. February 29th, they mm-hmm. pull out all the stops. Uh, there's an excellent article in today's uh, Times. Here's a woman. Her name is uh, Beth Oilicker. Uh, she'll be partying in New York. Uh, it's her 15th birthday and her eighth wedding anniversary, if you don't <laughs> count all the years in between. She said, uh, we decided for some odd reason to also get married on February 29th. She is 59. She was born on February 29th, 1964. She got married on the same day in 1992. She said, my husband's favorite line to use when people ask him something unique about himself is that he married his wife on her seventh birthday. <laughs> Legally, she said. That's funny. <laughs> the couple live in Phoenix. They have two grown kids. They take an adventurous trip to have a big celebration on that day. Isn't that cool? That is really fun. Mm-hmm. Wow. Do you know anybody whose birthday I don't. I no don't one, either. No. Lex, do you know anybody? I mean, Five million people across the globe. That's not a lot of people. And the three of us don't know any no, of them. No, we don't know anybody, huh? That's sad. Uh, here's another woman. Her name is uh, Myra Walker. She has big plans for her birthday. She is celebrating her, her sweet 16th birthday, oh. even though she is 64 years okay. of age. She said, I'm going to go out to dinner with a bunch of my friends and family. Uh, when I actually turned 16, my mother made me go to the opera, and I was so mad. This is going to be a good one. Nobody's going to make me do what I want, uh, what I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Well, good for her. Yep. <coughs> Very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like something special should happen today for everybody. For everybody. I just feel like... Because it's a leap day. Yeah. You should do something that maybe you weren't planning on doing or something of value. Mm-hmm. Out of the ordinary. Or something maybe you've been procrastinating about or something you've been really looking forward to. I think that's what we should all aim for before <laughs> okay. midnight strikes. Well, here's the deal. I'm not cleaning out my bedroom closet. <laughs> I just say it. Okay. I have been procrastinating, but I'm not going to celebrate. You know what I got, by the way? Mm-hmm. I ordered these things from Amazon. They're like these stackable crates that are relatively nice looking. Yeah. So that I can get some of the stuff out of my closet. That you that remains hidden. That remains hidden. And just put it at least in a place where I could access it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because my closet is so dumb. Right. It's so dumb. How many closets are like that? I it's mean, so... We'll say, you know, my kid was looking for something and I was like... Well, maybe it's in your brother's closet, and he's like, I can't go in there. Right, it's just, right like who can face that? Some closets are just verboten. Yeah, it's just too stupid. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to see if these bins Stackable. are- Stackable. Ni- they look pretty nice. What's that mean, though? You're going to have a bunch of like stuff sitting out? 
Like, but they're gonna, but it's it's just gonna be bins sitting out. Like mm-hmm. maybe three on the bottom, three on top. Mm-hmm. What do you think's in there? Well, I'm at least I'm going to be able to. I'm gonna put my sheets and oh. my pillowcases in one of them because where they are right now is so inaccessible. It's just really, really stupid. Right, but will they get cat hair on them? No, because they the bins are covered. Oh, oh, they have oh, a lid. Oh, they have oh, a Velcro I lid. See. Oh, very nice. The lid. Hinges down and then Velcro's okay. in the front. Okay. So when uh, initially when you said this, I thought like you're going to pull out like little porcelain oh, figurines, oh, or something great. like that. No, like I don't. Chachka. No, I don't want to. I don't right. want to. Chachka. You have any of those? I do have. Figurines? I have a um, a box of precious moments in the back of my. You do. Yeah, waiting for the time when they're going to be worth something. Were you but a collector? Not, yeah. Well, what? not really a collector, but I did have a bunch of them. No. What, they're never going to come no. around again, are they? It's like Pokemon cards. So I should just give them away and make Pitch some them? space in my closet. Sorry, yeah, it's not. I mean, really, you should give them away. <clears throat> okay, maybe okay. I will. Maybe, maybe give them to a listener. Caller number seven. Gets off. (laughs) Including the little uh, bride and groom that were on top of my wedding cake. Anyway, it's a Thursday at five o'clock, and that means it's time for five at five. John, get your pen or pencil out. I'd like to give you these five things uh, that you will have to rank and explain your choices. Five. Wait, is this salsa or tango music? What'd you say? What'd you say? I, well, I asked Lex the other day. We kind of went, went down a rabbit hole with this. What do you think? She just thought it was just funny music. I think I'm a, I am I want to say mm, tango. I'm not maybe. sure. I don't It might. It's probably neither. Yeah, probably, probably neither. You're right about that. Okay, let's go. Five and five. Uh, later in the show, we're talking about uh, Pittsburgh's best salads. Mm. And so I'm giving you five salads, five John. Five salads. Mm-hmm. I like a salad. Okay, steak salad. Yep. Tuna salad. Mm-hmm. Spinach salad with mm-hmm. bacon, mm-hmm. hot bacon dressing, mm-hmm. lime jello salad mm-hmm. with marshmallows and or cream cheese, <laughs> Greek salad mm. Excellent. with olives, Excellent. tomatoes, cucumbers, feta. Those are good. Those are good. I mean, other than the lime jello salad, I would eat any of those right now. Would you? Happily. Okay. Heck yeah. Okay. So this is just me. Okay. This I'm just saying... This is my preference. This is your of what, preference. Of what I want to eat right now. Five at five. Number five? Yes. The aforementioned lime jello salad, <laughs> which is not of nature and is not really a salad. And but the weird thing is a great sentimental peg in my life. And weird. Oh, and it had a maraschino cherry somewhere in oh, it or on it. Which is the only thing I really kinda of want to eat. Okay. Right? The lime jello salad. All okay. right. That takes uh, number four. Boy, they're all good. I mean, this is kind of hard. Yeah. Number four, I'll do the spinach with bacon. Will you? Okay. But, I mean, I'm not going to say no to that. If one just magically appeared in front of me, mm-hmm. I'd be happy to eat it right now. Okay. Because it's delicious. Do you want the bacon crumbled or do you want the hot bacon dressing? I want both. Oh. Right. With the eggs. Oh, hard boiled. Mm, yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, number three, give me the tuna salad. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because we just recently discovered... The joy of tuna. Yep. Right? And the tuna melt. Yeah, the tuna melt. So why not put it on the salad? That's okay. good. Okay, great. Sometimes my wife wants me to have that for dinner. And I'm like, it's not enough. That's not dinner for you. No. Tuna salad. It doesn't hit it. Really? No. Even if you have a side of something. No. Okay. It just feels like I'm, you know, no. Give me more. That's all. All right. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> like I'm not complaining. Sorry, hon. <laughs> yeah. Calling you out on the show here. Sorry, but give, hey. me, give me more. <laughs> yeah, okay. Bad, bad husband. Hit that boo button there, would you, Lex? <laughs> Please. Okay. Number two, um, the Greek salad. 
Okay. Lovely. Fabulous. I've eaten many, many, many Greek salads in my life. Because you lived in Astoria. I lived in Astoria, New York. was the Greek capital. At least it was when I was living there in the 1980s. Feta cheese... I mean, so Kalamata so olives. Oh, so delicious. Are you kidding me? Yeah, the Greek salad. All the oregano. Primo. I love that. Mm-hmm. Nice tomato in the summer. Lovely. Fabulous. Excellent. And of course, number one, the steak salad. A good steak salad? Now that is fine eating. That fills you up too, doesn't it? With or without fries. Oh, with. And some, like some wedge fries. Make it oh, like you don't steak want, You don't fries. want like the shoestrings on No, top. give me some like chunk it up. And a nice piece of steak. Nothing like, you know, some cheese ball. But all that greenery, all those tomatoes, all the olives, all the dressing, you stir it up. You can put a hard-boiled egg there, too. Of course you can. That's delicious. That's America is what a steak salad is. All right. like it. We are in the throes of the Lenten season, and... um, Kath and Lex and I, uh, we have all uh, been denying ourselves uh, from uh, something that has been crushing our lives. <laughs> it's true. We decided to try to uh, distance ourselves from sugar independently. Yeah, we, the three this. of us didn't decide to do it as a team, which is weird. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like it's kind of like Lexi or Lexi. Alexa was listening in exactly. Which, which, just, don't you that drive you crazy? That's creepy. Right. So here we are. We're two plus weeks into this. It's and a, I don't. I did it because I felt like sugar had become too important to me. For me, you thought the same thing. Uh, One hundred. I live and die by it. Yeah. W- more appropriately, I'm dying by it. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. a. It's been hard. It's uh, harder than I thought. Yeah. I mean, because I in don't my like it. mind, when I'm eating, I'm thinking about what's coming next. You mean, you mean now or? Yes. Oh no! Previous to this. Right. Because I'm always thinking about okay, well, what am I going to eat after this meal? Right, I'm going to have well, I'm having dinner, and then I'm going to have three cookies. Right, but now I really am enjoying my food more. That is the number one takeaway I have. Mm-hmm. Now, my takeaway is, I think about eating something and then feel disgruntled because I can't, and then I go, okay, surrender and and pray about it. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's I mean, yeah. Tell me about it in the midst of it all. I mean, when you think about it, it's such a first world problem that we're sacrificing. It is. It means nothing. Ridiculous. But I was thinking it's good for me to just be like an adult and say you can't have what you want. And this is all the time. You just can't. Right. This is this is what it is. Dr. Amy Peeler is back with us. She's a regular guest on our show. Associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton Mm -hmm. College. Associate rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church. Also the author of an excellent book, Women and the Gender of God. Dr. Peeler, welcome back. Oh, it's so good to be back with you all. I'm I'm listening to your conversation with great joy. This is very interesting, all this denial during this season. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how do you look at Lent? Do you feel like it's an appropriate season for denial? I, I'm not sure how, I, I think I know how your general tradition uh, looks at it, but how do you personally? Yeah. No, I think it is a great season to do something different. Uh, I think humans don't want to just repeat the same thing every day, right? All cultures have holidays and festivals and times of, you know, more solemnity. And so the church calendar attends to that very human issue. So I do think Lent is a great time, as y'all are talking about, to practice self-control, to say, I don't have to have things. And Kathy, I love hearing that in so doing, you actually are able to enjoy other things more. Mm -hmm. Um, I think personally, you know, coming into this season, sometimes 
I do feel like, hey, there are things I'm too dependent on. I need to cut them out. But in other instances, this this year, it's also a good time to add practices. Like maybe there's a devotional practice I've kind of let go. This would be a good time to add it to my schedule. So maybe there's a little bit of a denial of personal time in that because you're adding something in. Uh, But I think the overarching is that, hey, these are seasons to live a little bit differently than we had been. It's not the regular, the same old. And that's actually refreshing. Excellent. Amy, uh, what I think is that a lot of, uh, especially Protestant, Presbyterian people who are outside of a you know a Roman Catholic tradition mm-hmm. look at the church calendar and perhaps even more so Lent as something a little outside of the mainstream. Has that been your experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that could be true. I think sometimes Christians would say, "Look, Jesus has died and is risen. Like we have the victory in Christ. We don't have to kind of walk around with sackcloth." and ashes, you know, like there's life to celebrate. And that's absolutely true. Uh, But I do think this season remembering two things. One, we always struggle with sin. And so an intentional time of repentance is a good preparation for Easter. And to also remember that we will die. I mean, that is a real downer, right? That is not something we want to think about. But talk about a first world issue or a modern issue. We don't often have to think about death unless, uh, you know, there's a health problem or something. But this season says this is not going to last forever. Uh, You will stand before God, and that's worthy of consideration. Hmm. Well, nobody wants to think about that, as you said. That's, no, that could be right. the most unpopular topic ever uh, for people to dwell on. Um, but right. I think, but that's part of the sickness that we have, right? Is that mm. we kind of act, or we we act like it's not going to happen, or we're amusing ourselves to death in the process. Yes. Yes, that's right. And actually, there's something uh, freeing, I think, in the church practice of this. So yes, we have these 40 days of Lent, these weeks of considering these heavy things. But there's a pause on that every Sunday. So Every Sunday when we come together, that's a feast day. That's a celebration of the resurrection. I was just talking with one of the high school members of our church, and she said, too, I'm giving up sugar, and we were at church, and we were having some treats. And I was like, oh, but you can have it on Sunday. She's like, oh, I had no idea. I thought you had to deny yourself the whole time. And I said, no, that's not really how the calendar is set up. We get little breaks on Sunday along the way to remind us, ultimately, hey, the resurrection is coming. Yes, I need to think about my mortality, but Christ has already solved that problem. And I get to remember that one day a week in this (laughs) season of heaviness. So the idea of denying ourselves, I mean, in 21st century America, that that is verboten, right? We rarely Mm. deny ourselves. And so uh, are there theological practices? I mean, is there, I wonder if there's like, you know, a, a Bible study of denying ourselves. I mean, would that be the, the, the case? Oh, that's a great question. Maybe one of the best places to go, I think the Gospel of Mark, that section, especially chapters 8 through 10, where Jesus is emphasizing the cost of discipleship. He says to them all, I'm coming to die. You know, Peter has that confession, hey, you shouldn't have to have to die. That's no good. And and Jesus says, hey, that's the way of thinking like the devil, not like God. Mm. Death mm. is a part of this, uh, part of this movement. And you need to 
to take up your cross. So that could be a great place to go. The church actually started this season to get people who wanted to make a commitment to Christ, to become Christians, be baptized, to give them several weeks to really consider, to count the cost, as Jesus says. Do you want to join this movement? Because it is going to cost you everything. Wow, I didn't know that, Amy. So it's built in then to to church history. Let's pause and consider where we are if you'd like to join us or not, because it comes at a price. Exactly. Both for those who were considering joining the movement and also for those who had fallen away, maybe an egregious sin or they had stopped participating with the the church. This was a season for them to return, uh, Mm. to repent, to show that they were sorry for what they had done. And then they would be let back in at Easter. Really? I've Mm. Amy, I've never heard that. Yeah, and I, I'm drawing here, I, I really wanted to recommend my friend Esau McCauley has mm. a book called Lent. Um, it's in the series Fullness of Time for all the church year. It's very readable, very accessible, but he does a great job of telling the story. But yes, this season is preparation for con- uh, conversion, and also it's a season of reconciliation, which I think is actually really powerful. So if there have been broken relationships in your family or with friends or the church, this is actually a great time of year to think about how those could be healed and restored. Mm. Wow. Okay. So it's, so we were talking about giving up sugar and I, and, (laughs) and that's uh, a minor that first of all, it's so incredibly minor. Um, But to me, it was, it was major because I just felt like there was something that was mastering me. Do you know what mm, I mean? Yeah. Um, and I just felt I just felt like it was unhealthy. I needed to to get a grip on it. But John and I were talking about um, Joel chapter two before you came on the air with mm, us, uh, cool. Amy. Uh, this is uh, starting with the twelfth verse. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with mm. all your heart, with fasting and weeping mm. and mourning. Rend wow. your heart, not your garments. Return mm. to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. And so to me, it's, I I kind of read that as, you know, rend your heart, not give up sugar. You know what I mean? Like, like, like the sugar's not the point, I guess is what I'm saying. That's true. And yet we are beings who are both soul and spirit and body. So sometimes the way into our heart is through our Mm -hmm. stomach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes that is the case. And so um, there's a way in which it could be performative, right? Oh, I'm giving up sugar. I want to, you know, tell friends about that, how hard it is or whatever. But then I think how you're talking about it is this is unhealthy. And this is a great time of year for me to ask the Lord's assistance and doing something that's getting rid of something that's not good for me. So it can be more substantive, for sure. Fabulous. Amy, thanks. Thanks for this always. A a very unique perspective you always present. Oh, so fun to discuss with you all. I hope it is a blessed, a holy Lent for you, and then a wonderful Easter. A great, great celebration. We're looking forward to it. That's Dr. Amy Peeler, Associate Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and she's the author of Women and the Gender of God. We'll be right back. Much more to come on the Thursday edition of The Ride Home. Does this make sense? It does what make sense? Steroids. <laughs> now, I, I've I injured my back, mm. and uh, 
I haven't been able to make any headway in it, you know, getting better. Dissipated. And so the, the physician described or prescribed for me a five-day pack of steroids. Now, I feel better today than I felt in about five years. <laughs> and I, nothing hurts. Yeah. I feel, I feel great. You took five hits of steroids. Five. Yeah. Does this make sense? Because I know that, like, Sunday and Monday is coming. And I'm going to go back to my normal no, self. No, no, no. Here's the deal. Yeah. It's a quick hit, but it lasts longer than five days. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. You'll feel this for the next couple really? of weeks. Really? Really? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, you got the initial lift of the wings. Yeah, I sure and, did. And, and that's going to carry you through for a nice chunk. Is it? Yeah. Okay. It'll fade out slowly. Mm-hmm. I might start writing a book. <laughs> so the steroids make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, of course they do, but there's a dark side. There's a dark side. Yes, there is. But, boy, the initial pump of oh, the relief, oh, the flush, so the pain. So much energy. Yeah. I, I mean, all I've been doing is thinking about how much my back hurts right. for the last six days. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice if they, there was no side effects or after effects because mm-hmm. they really, it's a miracle. But ultimately, they don't make sense. Yeah. Not for the long term. But the short term, yes. So I should enjoy it today? I think so. Okay. Carry on. Mm-hmm. All right, this is a different perspective. Does this make sense? Vegetarianism. <laughs> I mean, yes. Does it make sense? Yes. But mm-hmm. you have but that is only for you and don't you put that on anyone else. <laughs> if you feel like that's a moral thing for you or maybe for health, health. reasons, either one, that's fine. But please don't talk about it at a dinner party. Right. Please don't bring it up in a group. Please don't talk about your new diet plan when you're on the bus. I cannot stand that. But health-wise? I mean, I think it makes sense. But here's the thing. I am a vegetarian a lot of the time because my husband, husband can't eat meat. And I got to tell you, it's certainly not a shortcut to losing weight. No. It's not at all. Um, it is cheap. Mm-hmm. Er. It is much cheaper. Than buying meat, but it's not a cure-all for everything. I mean, come on. Yeah. You think? I think it makes sense. I think we eat too much meat. Yeah. But at the same time, I'd prefer not to. I mean, I, oh, I yeah. love my veggies, but I want to eat a steak or a burger too. I know. So it does make sense, but it doesn't make sense. Same with steroids in a way. What if, like uh, Jerry Seinfeld's wife, it was every once in a while? One thing about the headlines is, if you read deeply, of course, into the day-to-day, what's happening in the news, you get yourself a good understanding, at least, you know, a sketch understanding of the legal profession, especially now, considering all the high-profile cases that are going on, Mm -hmm. whether it's locally or nationally with the Supreme Court and former President Trump. Well, Bruce Ankoviak is back with us. He's a law professor at St. Vincent College. Here today to talk to us about a very interesting thing that comes up often about prosecutors not disclosing favorable information to defendants. Bruce, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. So, Bruce, uh, you tell us that this is an issue uh, that has been raised for a long time. Some are considering this an epidemic. Talk about why and give us a concrete example so those of us that aren't in the courtroom can kind of get a handle on what this thing is. Sure. I give you a classic example of the first Supreme Court case, although this was certainly not the first time this happened. In 63, a man named Brady goes to trial in Maryland for a murder. 
uh, the, he was, in a, along with another man who robbed a convenience store, the clerk was shot and killed. The question in the case was not whether Brady was part of it, but whether he was the shooter. If he was the shooter, he's liable for the death penalty. If he wasn't, he wasn't. Brady did not dispute that he was involved in the crime, but said, I wasn't the shooter. He gets convicted, he gets the death penalty. Later on, he finds out that the government had in its possession a signed confession by his co-defendant that the co-defendant was the shooter. And they didn't give it to him. Wow. And the Supreme Court said, well, you know, uh, prosecutors have an obligation to turn this over. Um, Ever since then, there have been any number of cases. There was a, a terrible case from western Pennsylvania not that long ago. A man named Munchinski was convicted of a murder down in Fayette County, spent 25 years in prison for this. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal court, ultimately entered a ruling that there were seven different violations of this principle, which is now called the Brady Principle, of of not turning over critical evidence that would have disputed the government's theory of the case, suggested someone else was involved in it, and in fact, there were circumstances in which the prosecutors allegedly suborned perjury, told a witness what to say when the witness wasn't prepared to say it. Um, Menchinsky was, of course, finally released from jail, sued the people involved, won an $8 million verdict, and died the next day. Oh, my. You're kidding Um, me. No, no. Um, Now, I tell this story to my classes, and I will say to them, uh, here's here's my deal I'm going to offer you. Go to jail for 25 years for a murder you didn't commit. But when you get out, I'll give you $8 million bucks. Uh, anybody want the deal? Absolutely nobody right. wants that deal. Yeah. Um, these cases happen repeatedly. Supreme Court of Pennsylvania just reversed another one at the end of 2023 for this. And sometimes what happens is, the defendant gets a new trial. Sometimes when the courts find that it was a willful or intentional uh, effort on the part of either the police or the prosecution to withhold this evidence, simply throw out the case. And there, there can be no prosecution here. Now, the, the reasons for these things happening are, are many. It's amazing for some people who are not in the system to realize this, but police sometimes do not trust prosecutors. And there are times when the police will not turn over evidence that they have acquired to the prosecutors. The prosecutors may be, in some circumstances, totally unaware that something was was uncovered that was exculpatory. Okay, why would, why would a police officer or a, a police captain withhold that? Oh, great grand question. Um, This is because police look at prosecutors as mm, someone on our side, not really us. Got it. And sometimes you folks are prosecutors today, then you leave that office and you become defense attorneys. 
And, uh, you know, you, you don't wear a badge. You don't ride in the car. You don't face the people with the guns. And we do. And there is a distrust there. This has been ongoing for many, many, many years. And there is a concern that that prosecutors are simply not in a position to really be trusted. But then there are prosecutors who, undoubtedly because of institutional pressures in their office, or simply the desire to mount a political career, will go about and seek the, the conviction of someone by withholding certain critical evidence that would realistically call into doubt their guilt. And, you know, the the problems that that I have with those cases, and there have been many documented cases of individuals who have been serving sentences, been on death row for, for the most serious offenses you can imagine, being exonerated as not guilty, completely not guilty. Uh, And and this usually happens because of DNA, but sometimes it happens for other reasons, where now we know this guy didn't do it. The the tragedy of that is twofold. First of all, yes, this guy has been in prison for a tremendous amount of his life for something he did not do. But on the other side of that coin, the guy that did the crime got away with it. Yeah. The guy that did the crime is laughing up his sleeve. And in many cases, we've documented that those people who got away with it committed a number of other crimes while they were still out when they should have been in prison for the crime they should have been charged with. It It is a real issue. It's a cancer on the system. And, uh, again, judges have identified this as an epidemic, uh, as unimaginable problems that have occurred. But right now, what bothers me a lot is there's very little being done about it. You would think that a prosecutor who would be actually doing something like this would face expulsion from the legal system, the loss of their license. Uh, That doesn't happen. There was a study conducted by some about four or five years ago of many cases from many states where the prosecutor had been engaged in intentional misconduct, and they found that in only 2% of those cases, relevant bar associations do anything to sanction that prosecutor. Really? Um, And why is that, Bruce? I mean, it seems like that would be in their interest to police that system. Sure. Get rid of the bad guys. It is, it, it is an inexplicable thing to me that this, that this does not happen. Um, th- this is a rule. It's a constitutional rule. It is a rule of court that you have to give this evidence over. And in the Pennsylvania Rules of Professional Conduct, and I believe in every other as well, there is a specific rule of professional conduct that tells uh, tells a prosecutor to turn this evidence over. Right. But that is simply not been enforced. Now, Bruce, to be honest, this is really horrible news because, you know, we, we live in an age right now where many people believe that everything is rigged, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's the elections or the, or the Super, Super Bowl. Bowl. Right. right. Everything's rigged. 
And so there has to be some peace here. There's some, some wisdom, someone with higher standards. You just can't imagine someone who wrongly convicts someone who wakes up in the morning, looks themselves in the mirror and go, hey, that was good. Good job. Um, there have been cases where some of those people who were prosecutors later went on to serve as judges. And um, oh. that, 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 that's deeply, deeply troubling to me. Um, but it's, it, it, is, it is one of those things this system has not addressed. And I, and I can tell you candidly, one of the reasons I think it hasn't been addressed because the public does not really have an appreciation of that. Yeah. Uh, the depth of it. I, I, teach, I teach a master's level course here at St. Vincent in which I discuss this. Uh, students, a number of whom only got their bachelor's degree, but they've been out in the, in the workforce in the criminal justice system for a period of time. And, and universally, of course, they will say to me, we never realized it was this bad. And, and I will say to them, I'm just showing you what's on the published public record here. And, and, I'm, and I'm telling you that no one is studying the problem, understanding why it occurs, and nobody is really trying to come up with a solution to address these sorts of problems right. that, that undermine the public's confidence in the system. Right. And, and the criminal justice system relies on that confidence. Now, of course, Bruce, one day to be wrongly incarcerated is one day too many. But I, I don't want you to walk away from us in this conversation feeling as though we've suffered an epidemic. I mean, we have to have confidence in the legal system in this country. Otherwise, all is lost. We, we, we have the right to have confidence that, indeed, in my experience, the vast majority of prosecutors are honorable people. Thank you. There are, there are, the, it seems to be the more serious the case, the more likely it is that there are pressures put on a prosecutor to get that conviction, mm-hmm. to clear that case, and that these things happen in those cases at a, at a relatively high frequency. And it, and it's, it, it's deeply disturbing to see this because, again, we we want to believe particularly, and this has happened in death penalty cases, we want to believe that if we are going to carry out the death penalty, sure of the fact that this individual has done the act for which they deserve this ultimate penalty. And if there is serious doubt about that, uh, that, that undermines the, the effort of society to take an ultimate uh, act to exercise the most power we give the government uh, to take someone's life. And that, that continues to be a real deep concern. John, I, if you ask me how often does this occur, the answer is I don't know. Mm, sure. Because most of these cases, it, it is only by luck or some other device than it ever finds out that something was. There's no systematic way in which you can review a case for missed 
undisclosed evidence after after a conviction. Right. And Bruce, I, I remember years ago when I first heard about the Innocence Project, which, of course, is, is created to make sure that people who, um, who are convicted are not wrongly convicted. I mean, they've released uh, any number of men and women from prison because of the crimes that were supposedly committed but weren't. So the Innocence Project and other people like that, and of course you as an advocate for this, ringing the bell to ensure that there is sanity and that the truth will reign in the courtroom. I hope so. I have many friends, associates who have done fine work for the Innocence Project. One of the the local directors of the Innocence Project is an old student of mine. That's how old I am. Hmm. But... uh, uh, you know, my, my whole my whole pitch with them is, yes, it's terrible what has happened to these people who have been convicted. But please, in the same breath, make sure that society knows that that the right guy got away with it. Yeah. And that is a that is a double tragedy. Yeah, it is, because who knows, as you said, what else has been perpetrated in the meantime? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Bruce, Bruce, it's always a treat to talk to you. Thank you for breaking down legal things for regular people. My my pleasure. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you guys. The Thanks honor, a lot. Truly, the honor's ours, Bruce. Bruce Ankowiak, he's a law professor at St. Vincent College, a named Duquesne's Law School's 07 Teacher of the Year by the Association of American Law Schools, author of two major works on criminal law and 11 law review articles and journals across the country. That's uh, Bruce Ankowiak. So you call a plumber, you generally just expect a guy to show up, right? I mean, I not just expect, I'm certain yeah. that a guy's going to show up. An HVAC person, a guy's going to show up. I mean, there are many, many, many Roofer. professions yeah, that Contractor. are dominated by, of course, men. Mm-hmm. It's just what it is. But there's an article out about a new breed of do-it-yourselfers or professionals who are primarily women because in the past men were there now they're fading away from the workforce women are taking up this call what do you think i think it's really awesome i've been reading a lot about the um i you know for the last 20 years the country has really pushed you know Everybody should go to college. Everybody should have the opportunity to go to college. Sure. So now we're 15 or 20 years into that experiment, and people have incredibly soaring college debt and maybe aren't making much money or maybe really didn't perform well in college because it really wasn't their thing. So in the last, I don't know, year or so, I've been reading more and more articles about trying to extend vocational schools as not just, you know, an alternative, but a viable option for graduating seniors from high school. So you don't have to go to college. You could go to a trade school. You could come go to some vocational school, learn to be a plumber, learn to be an electrician or whatever. You'd make money a lot faster, a lot sooner. And maybe college isn't for you. For a lot of people. I mean, look, uh, our our good friend wrote a book about college and the astronomical cost about right. what it is to Michael engage. Smith, yeah. from CMU. 90000 dollars or more for a lot of students. And of course, you're taking out loans and the interest upon that. You're indebted to a lifetime of just paying back, paying back, paying back. So what does that look like? And I think oftentimes people say, well, you know, for a lot of, a lot of, I hate to say it, but, you know, upwardly mobile people, you think, well, the trades, 
Mm-hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is we know. We know kids who work in the trades. Yeah, we do. I mean, out of the box, out of the box, you're making easy 80 grand. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. Right. Right. There are apprenticeship programs all over the place, plumbers, electricians, HVAC, boilermakers, you name it. The trades are crying out for people, men and women, mm-hmm. to fill those shoes. Because what happens whenever those those places are empty? There's a dearth of people that are open. These spots are necessarily, yeah. they're needed. Listen, we're going to need plumbers forever. There's never, there's never going to be a situation where there are too many. Right. We're going to need electricians forever. We're, you know what I mean? Those, the call for those jobs is never going to go away. So what's that look like? I mean, especially for women in unusual professions, right? Okay, so women I, plumbers. I talked in the four o'clock hour about uh, when I was home uh, trying to rehabilitate my back over the last four days. I watched the HBO show Julia yeah. because John said you have got to watch this, and it's about Julia Child. And the thing that just stuck in my head that they did such a wonderful job showing is not only was her idea about hosting a cooking show kind of crazy because nobody had ever cooked on TV before. But it was a completely male-dominated field, broadcasting. Yes. Television was was 99% men. And so all of a sudden, Julia Child comes in. She's a woman. She's not taken seriously in any way. Even though she had a best-selling book, cookbook at the time, it still didn't matter. She just wasn't taken seriously. Nor were any, really, any of the women who were in her, uh, you know, in her circle of friends. Um, and it's not a show that just you know, winds on about how terrible it is for women, but it just shows that women were uncomfortable in that setting. And those were the times. Those were the times. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.